I was raised by God-fearing parents in a Christian home. I was taught that Christ died for my sins and that faith in Jesus was all that was necessary for salvation. I believed this at an early age, and yet I struggled with doubt. It seemed too simple. I couldn't get a hold of it. I worried that my faith wasn't strong enough. Maybe I hadn't actually done what I was supposed to do. How could I know if I was God's child? I remember praying the sinner's prayer over and over in hopes that it would take. That prayer goes something like this. God, I believe in Jesus. Forgive me for my sins and save me. Maybe if I was really sincere and focused with no distractions, God would hear my prayer and forgive me. But I couldn't be sure, so I just prayed it again and again. And each time I mustered up as much faith as I could. It was exhausting and overwhelming. Something was clearly wrong, but I didn't know what it was. It was years before I fully understood and overcame these nagging doubts. What about you? Do you have confidence that you are forgiven, a child of God with an eternal home in heaven? Do you know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven? Are you ready to face God in your eternity? Perhaps my struggle and my experience was unique, but it's unlikely. I've lived long enough and talked to enough people to recognize that most of us experience feelings of doubt and inadequacy about our relationship to God at some point in our lives. Some of you may actually be feeling this right now. The good news is that there are answers to our questions in our passage today, because the Galatians were struggling with similar issues. And my prayer is that our time in God's word this morning will give you a proper understanding and confidence about your relationship with God. Now, before we dig into today's passage, let's refresh ourselves with some context. Paul had planted the churches in Galatia and things started well. They trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and God's spirit was moving among them. They were growing and maturing. Then false teachers called Judaizers slipped in, teaching them that faith in Christ was not enough. They lacked the additional steps of following the Jewish law of Moses in the Old Testament, beginning with circumcision. They undermined Paul's authority and disparaged his credentials. Their teaching thoroughly rattled the Galatians, and they became spiritually confused. So in response, Paul wrote a personal but stern letter to the Galatians in order to address these problems. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul established that he was a genuine apostle of the one true gospel of free grace. We just completed that with Tyson's sermon last week. Now we're starting chapters 3 and 4, where Paul will explain the theology of the gospel of free grace. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul will provide instructions for how to live out the gospel of free grace. Now, in the immediately preceding verses of chapter 2, 16 through 21, Paul wrote about the heart of the gospel. The gospel answers this question. How can a sinful human be acceptable before a holy and righteous God? Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified means to be declared righteous. That's the easiest definition I can give it. It's how God sees us. It's not how we act. It's about our legal standing, not our behavior. Paul says this righteousness comes through faith, not works of the law. By that, he just means human effort. And then the last verse of chapter 2 ends with, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, 
then Christ died for no purpose. Now, justification and righteousness are related. To be justified is to be declared righteous. This is an act of grace on God's part because it doesn't depend on us, but on Christ's sacrifice. So what Paul is saying is if we rely on keeping the law for righteousness, Christ's death was pointless. The Galatians, like me as a boy, and maybe you today, were struggling to believe that they were truly righteous before God. Had they actually done enough? Yes, they believed in Christ, but it wouldn't hurt to make sure, right? So some started following the Old Testament law again, beginning with circumcision. Others started observing special days, months, seasons, and years, according to chapter 4, verse 10. They had lost confidence in Christ's work on the cross, which is why Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul rebukes the Galatians using forceful language. He calls them foolish. But there's a good reason. Did they really believe that Christ died for no purpose? That's unthinkable. Yet this is what their actions were saying. By reverting to the law in order to be right with God. And later in Galatians chapter 5, 2, Paul says it again. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ died to set them free from the condemnation of the law. If they return to the law, then his death becomes meaningless. This is so shocking to Paul that he wonders if their confusion might have been caused by demonic activity. He uses the word bewitching. The distortion itself came through men, yes, but demonic forces often distort the truth of God. Now, in contrast, Paul's preaching always focused on the cross of Christ, not on keeping the law. He summarized his preaching in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he said, We preach Christ crucified. That's it. Now we should pause at this point and ask, Why always preach about Christ crucified? Isn't there more? <laughs> because the cross was the culmination of God's plan to redeem condemned sinners from eternal judgment. It was at the cross that our sins were finally forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 sums it up this way. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that. Now the words as crucified in verse 1 here are literally having been crucified. This is the perfect tense of the verb and it's significant. Ancient Greek is a very precise language. The perfect tense describes a past event that continues to have significance in the present. Jesus was crucified and rose again in history, but that event has ongoing and eternal implications. In fact, the result of Christ's work on the cross is a twofold transfer. Number one, God transfers the guilt of our sin to Christ. In this, in this chapter 3, in verse 13, he would say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? by becoming a curse for us. And then two, God transfers the righteousness of Christ to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 actually has both of these transfers in it. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Amazingly, it is the cross of Christ that forever changes how God views us. Colossians 1.22 is a verse you should memorize. He, God, has now reconciled us in his body of flesh, Christ, by death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's how God sees you. You see, the eternal Son of God became flesh and took on himself the wrath of God on the cross in order to atone for our sin. His life of perfect obedience to the law was sacrificed for us. Our sin was placed on Jesus, while his righteousness was credited to us by faith. This, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this gospel is changed in any way, it is gutted of its power. Now, the Galatians knew the gospel well. When Paul says in verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, he means that he had taught them these truths so clearly, it was like they witnessed the crucifixion itself. They knew the death and resurrection of Jesus was what made them right, righteous before God, not trying and ultimately failing to keep the law of Moses or any moral law system. So, to keep them from reverting to the law, Paul appeals to the beginnings of their own spiritual experience. He asks a series of four rhetorical questions in order to jolt them back to the truth. These four questions were really about one single issue. Did they receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law or by having faith in Christ alone? The answer was obvious because the Galatians knew their own experience. Let's pick up in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul reminds them that they had received the Holy Spirit by faith and not through the law. Now remember, the Galatians had not been circumcised or kept the law prior to Paul's coming. Yet they had still received the Holy Spirit when they believed the gospel. Therefore, keeping the law cannot be required since God already gave them his Spirit. And because the Galatians have his Spirit, they clearly belong to the people of God. And if they are the people of God, they have been justified by God, declared righteous. We must remember that we have a triune God, one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. God the Father chose us before the creation of the world and sent his Son to redeem us. God the Son became human as we are and bore our sins in his body on the cross. And God the Spirit came from the Father and Son and plays a critical role in a believer's life. Here's a list of just some of the things the Holy Spirit does for believers. The Holy Spirit convicts a believer about the truth of Christ. John 16, 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Christ. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit confirms in a believer's heart that they're part of God's family. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit empowers each believer with abilities to serve others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit enables a believer to live obediently before God. 
Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit cultivates fruit in a believer's life. Galatians 5.22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Holy Spirit intercedes for the believer in their weakness. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then finally, in our short list, the Holy Spirit seals a believer for their eternal inheritance in heaven. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Galatians had experienced all this life-changing impact of the Holy Spirit. This must mean that they were children of God, justified in his sight by faith in Christ alone. And since they could not deny this, Paul asked them a second question in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They had received the Spirit by faith, but they were trying to finish the job on their own. By the way, perfected just means finish or complete, and by the flesh means human effort, including keeping the law. They were probably being told by the Judaizers the same thing the Judaizers said in Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, to the Judaizers, attaining righteousness with God was based on faith, yes, plus law-keeping. One theologian explains their false teaching this way. They did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stressed that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. You yourself must finish by your own obedience to the law what Christ has begun. But we cannot add to the work of Christ, my friends. It is perfect and finished and acceptable to God. The Christian life ends exactly the way it began, by faith in Christ through God's Spirit. We do not add our work to salvation, because salvation is God's work from beginning to end. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And even our good works were prepared for us by God as he shapes us into a masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is because of God's faithfulness, not ours, that we are kept blameless until Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's argument is that you began by the Spirit of God and you will finish by the Spirit of God. Only God can complete what God has begun. And God will complete his work in us by faith in Christ alone. Keeping the law will never make us right with God. Which leads Paul to his next rhetorical question in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
The word suffer can also be translated as experience, but it usually means suffer. He's likely referring to persecution for trusting in Christ, not about instead of following the law. See, Paul and Barnabas suffered persecution when they came to Galatia. We know that in Acts 13 and 14. And the Galatians, too, experienced suffering for their faith. We learn that in chapter 4, verse 29. But the work of the Spirit to sustain them through their suffering is a reminder to them that they belong to God. And it's a promise that he will sustain them in the future. Paul doesn't really believe that they suffered in vain, since he adds, if indeed it was, in vain. He's just trying to get their attention, to remind them of what they already know. Which leads Paul to his final rhetorical question in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The miracles Paul mentions here could be the signs and wonders done by the apostles. The Galatians had observed miracles when Paul and Barnabas came to them. But the miracles could also refer to everything we said earlier that God's Spirit does. Remember that list? Convicts, indwells, confirms, enables, empowers, produces, intercedes, seals, right? That whole list. God had given them his Spirit and had worked miracles among them when they responded to the gospel message with faith. The law had nothing to do with it. So the answer to Paul's series of questions is that God requires only faith, not human effort, not law-keeping, not circumcision, or anything else we might do. The Spirit is given to us in response to faith in Jesus. The Spirit works miracles in us by faith in Jesus. And the Spirit finishes God's work in us through faith in Jesus. So then, we are justified before God by faith alone, in Christ alone. However, a couple points of clarification would be helpful here. What exactly is faith? Well, biblically, there are three elements to saving faith. Number one, there's information. There's content that we must know and understand, that we are sinners condemned before a holy God, but that Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sin before God. Number two, agreement. There's truth that we must agree with personally. I must believe that Jesus truly died for my sins, and that his righteousness truly counts for me in God's eyes. And then thirdly, trust. There is trust or reliance that is required on my part. I must put my trust in Christ alone rather than in any action of my own, a prayer, baptism, whatever. Faith then is a conscious acknowledgement of my unrighteousness and a reliance on Christ's righteousness instead. Okay, but how exactly does our faith justify us before God? Now remember, justification means declared righteous. It's about being right with God, how he sees us. God justifies us through our faith in Christ, but not because of our faith in Christ. Let me explain. Faith is required for justification. Galatians 2.15. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. But we are not justified because of the inherent goodness of our faith. Our faith itself does not have any merit before God. Our faith doesn't earn favor with God. Rather, we are justified by means of our faith. It is simply the instrument Many churches today teach faith as a personal commitment with an action we take, 
raising a hand, walking an aisle, saying a prayer, getting baptized, etc. These actions can easily divert us from faith's object, which is Jesus, to one's own self. This was precisely what I didn't understand as a boy, which racked me with doubt. I thought my relationship with God depended on how well I believed or how I prayed. I thought it hinged on the intensity of my faith or the perfection of my understanding. I thought it was based on the words I used or the way that I approached God. But listen, the sincerity, purity, or strength of faith isn't what counts. It's what the faith is in. We are not justified because our faith atones for our sins. Our faith doesn't make up for our unrighteousness. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ. Christian, stop looking at your faith and start looking at your Savior. We are justified solely because of the merits of Christ's work for us. We are saved by faith, but we are not saved because of faith. We are saved because of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Justification by faith alone is shorthand for saying justification is by Christ alone. The basis of our justification is the righteous merit of Christ. He alone kept the law of God perfectly. His righteousness is given to those who believe. Did you ever stop to consider why God chose faith as the requirement for salvation instead of love, whatever? He chose faith as the means of justification because faith doesn't depend on us. Faith is a heart attitude that recognizes I cannot save myself. Faith is the opposite of trusting in ourselves. Faith is admitting you don't have what it takes. Faith is effectively saying, I give up. I can't depend upon myself in any way to be righteous before God. I can only trust in Christ to give me a right standing before God. God shows faith because it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not something we manufacture. Faith is the gift of God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God alone gives spiritual life to dead sinners, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So our confidence is in Christ, the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. Therefore, we are justified, counted righteous by God, by faith in Christ alone. Now, let's apply this practically. How can the truth of justification in Christ alone help us today? I'm going to give you some application, and all of the letters start with D. Easy to remember. Number one, justification by faith in Christ alone is the answer for the damned. There comes a day when every person must admit to being a sinner, selfish, prideful, greedy, lustful, critical, ungrateful, negative, a slanderer, unrighteous, and ultimately deserving of God's just eternal wrath. Our only hope is to recognize Christ's work for us. If anything depends on me, even my faith, then I have no hope. But if everything depends on Christ, then there is solid ground on which to stand in the day of judgment. Number two, justification by faith in Christ alone is the answer for the doubtful or the doubting. There are days when Christians struggle to believe, like I did. Is it true that God loves me? Are my sins really forgiven? When the doubts come, 
believers go back to the cross where Christ died to justify ungodly sinners. And we hold on to that truth. We don't look to our perfect faith. We look to our perfect Savior. And number three, justification by faith in Christ alone is the answer for the discouraged. Sometimes life is hard and overwhelming. This is when we need to remember the gospel, as Paul did. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we face each day, we don't look at our circumstances, or we shouldn't. We look at the Son of God, who loved us, gave himself for us, and lives in us. And so we face the day with a quiet and steady confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? The takeaway question today is very short, but it is the most important question you will ever answer. Are you trusting in Christ alone? If God has been moving in your heart as you listen to today's message, you may need to talk to someone. We have online hosts, we have connect cards. There are people who are praying for you and want to talk to you about your journey of faith. They would consider it a privilege to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus and have confidence. Please don't pass up this opportunity to think and pray with someone about what it means to trust in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you with grateful hearts. We are overwhelmed by the fact that you love us because we are not deserving of it. And our confidence is not in ourselves. It can't be in ourselves. Our confidence is in the work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus, who loved us, who gave himself for us, and who offers us through his perfect righteousness, a right standing with God forever. Oh Lord, we are tempted. We are so tempted to add our own works or some effort of our own Lord, help us reject that temptation and rest solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. For the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.